I am so glad to be here. And this is the first time in a long time I've been speaking to a live group. Uh, at least I hope you're alive. And um, I've been speaking into microphones and cameras and in auditoriums that didn't have anybody, just an empty auditorium. Someone said to me, is it strange to preach a sermon in an empty room? And I said, well, not for me. <laughs> I've been doing it for many, many years. But uh, it's wonderful to be able to see people. And I love Dr. Easley. He is Nashville's expositor. And my respect for him is so high that when he invited me to come, I was intimidated about it. But it's a real joy to be here and to be with all of you. And uh, I'm grateful for that kind invitation. I want to, before I get into uh, the subject, uh, mention a couple of resources I'd like for you to check out. One is a book that is coming out in July, but it's available now for pre-order. And the way publishing is now, everybody needs pre-orders in order to, to get that book launched. And it's called, Then Sings My Soul, 52 Hymns of Joyous Prayer. One of the series of books that I've done through the years has been, Then Sings My Soul, on the story behind the great hymns. And this is a new edition that is about 52 hymns of joyous prayer, hymns that lead us in prayer, that teach us to pray, and the story behind the hymns and devotional materials and suggested prayers and Bible studies are all included in this. And so you can look at your primary bookstore or book distributor and uh, check it out. And the other thing is that when all of the pandemic started, I had a real burden to try to do my little bit to help people. And so I started preaching 59 second sermons and I put on my Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feed, and uh, I called it Verses, Versus the Virus, Verses. And uh, that has evolved now into a daily one-minute, a little less than one-minute sermon that I just put on all of my social media platforms. And I'm going through the book of Ephesians, minute by minute. And uh, it's something you can do with your children for family devotions when you tuck them in just... You know, a lot of families have gotten away from family devotions. Um, but you can just say, let's listen to this first. And you can listen to it together and maybe have a prayer. So check out Robert J. Morgan Ministries, my social media platform, and I hope that may be of encouragement to you. Now, this is a very anxious time in our world. People all over the world are anxious about so many things. It's not just the sickness and the pandemic and the virus, but all of the financial ramifications of that and whether or not there will be another pandemic. And then the whole world right now, because of this, is suffering from post-traumatic stress. And none of us knows when there's going to be another wave of this or when something worse is going to happen. I mean, as bad as this was, the death rate, the mortality rate could have been worse. Or how close are we to having some kind of attack on our entire internet structure? Or how close are we to a weapon of mass destruction going off somewhere? And here in our nation, there is so much racial strife right now. So all of this is causing a lot of tension. But then, in addition to that, 
we have our own personal worries and concerns and things that, like the tip of a knife, just cut into us. There is a lot to worry about in this world. But last year, when I was going through a difficult time of worry, I forget where I was. I was, I think I was on the road somewhere, and I'm given to anxiety and battle with anxiety. And this visualization came into my mind. Now, I'm speaking devotionally here, not with great theological precision, but this came to my mind, that what if in the middle of when I was having a panic attack or an anxious moment, what if the Trinity came down, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they surrounded me and they asked me, what are you worried about now? And I would say, I am worried about this. What would God the Father say? Or the Son? Or the Holy Spirit surrounding me? What would they say? And in fact, of course, we know because we have it right here in the book. And God the Father, I think, would say, do not fret. The great Jehovah Yahweh of Israel in Psalm 37 said, do not fret. And then God the Son, in his most definitive passage about anxiety and worry in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, says, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than clothes and the body more than drink? He says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more than they? Which of you by worrying could add a single year to his life? And he goes on and on and says, do not worry. What would God the Holy Spirit say? Well, through the inspired pen of the Apostle Paul, we have Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God that passes or exceeds all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So I have just kept using that visualization. Lord, I am worried about this today. What are you worried about today? Every one of you. We all have things that worry us. Family members or loved ones or the future or vocational or medical issues. What are you worried about? Do not fret, says the Heavenly Father. Do not worry about your life, says God the Son. Do not be anxious about anything, says God the Holy Spirit. That is the threefold message of God to his children about our worries. Now, we don't have time to look at all three of those passages, so let's just begin with Psalm 37. I want to ask you to turn there with me to the 37th Psalm. It's a little bit longer, so I'm not only going to deal with the first paragraph, but let's read it here. You can follow along as I read. I am using today the New King James Version because... I liked that version with this passage, and that's what I memorized it in. But you can follow along in whatever passage you have. <clears throat> Psalm 37. Do not fret 
because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. <clears throat> it only causes harm. Now, this was written by David according to the superscription, Psalm 37, a Psalm of David, and it was written when he was an old man. This is not one of his early Psalms. This is one of his last ones. And we know because of verse 25, he says there, I once was young and now I am old. And I have a theory about this Psalm. I can't prove it. I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm pretty sure. And you can follow my theory and you can check me and see if you think I'm right. But here's my theory. In Joshua chapter 1, the Lord said to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. Now go over this Jordan River and every place where your foot falls upon, I will give to you. All of the land will be yours as I promised to Abraham from the Euphrates River to the great sea, the Mediterranean, and from Lebanon all the way to the Negev. A vast territory which had been promised to Abraham. And now Joshua said, you conquer this territory. Now the Euphrates River, you look at a map sometime, that goes through the middle of what we call today Iraq or Babylon, ancient Babylon. If you served in one of the Gulf Wars, you know exactly where that is. And that is a large territory. Joshua never possessed all of that territory. They only possessed a little sliver there, the land of Israel on both sides of the Jordan River, but not all the way from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates. And under Joshua's leadership, they possessed a little sliver and then in Judges chapter 1, we're told they possessed this, but they didn't possess this, they didn't possess this, they didn't possess this, they didn't conquer this, they didn't drive out these. They only had a little sliver of land. And Samuel came after the judges, and he was a great leader who united all of Israel, but he didn't expand the borders. And then came Saul, King Saul, and he didn't expand the borders. But then came David. And David was a man of war. He was a great warrior. He was a military strategist. And he pushed out the borders in every direction and possessed more of Israel than anybody had before him. He went not all the way through the Euphrates 
and about all the way to the Mediterranean, but he expanded this so that there was areas there that Israel had never before possessed, and now they were able to do so. Their enemies were defeated. They, he didn't annihilate them. You still had the Ammonites and the Moabites and all of these other groups living there, but David had dominated them. And so Israel had hegemony. And David would, I'm sure, station military batteries there. And he said, this is now the land of Israel. He annexed it for Israel. So what did they do? Well, undoubtedly, they did exactly what Israel is doing today. They began building settlements on the occupied territory, neighborhoods. And so brave Israelites would go into this conquered area and begin to settle down there. My theory is that Psalm 37 was written especially to these settlers who were in hostile territory. David had sent them there. They had volunteered to build a Jewish presence in this newly acquired land. Now, why do I say that? Let me show you some verses here in Psalm 37. Verse 3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. You go live in that land and feed on God's faithfulness. And look at verse 9. <coughs> Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth, is what the New King James Version says. The New International Version says the land. They will inherit the land. Verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. Verse 22, for blessed by him, for those blessed by him shall inherit the land. Verse 27, depart from evil and do good and dwell in the land forever. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it. Verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. So seven times in Psalm 37, David says, you go in and you possess that land. You conquer that land and you live there. It is your inheritance. It is a part of Israel's inheritance forever. So it seems to me, you can disagree with me, I can't prove it, but I think that Psalm 37 was written to settlers who are going into newly occupied territory are here the Lord has sent us in to the land of our defeated enemy, the devil, to establish settlements, to establish his church here on enemy territory in this land. And we're all trying to build our families and to build our lives and to build our churches, but we are in hostile territory. So we need some great advice for how to deal with our defeated enemy who is still causing us problems because our nature is we're going to fret about all of these things. We have a lot to worry about. Here we are trying to live for Jesus Christ, trying to claim the inheritance that is ours, everything that God wants us to experience. We want that for ourselves, but we have hostility around us 
and we have an enemy who's been defeated, but who is still causing us problems. Can you relate to that? I feel like I can relate to that. And so that makes Psalm 37 to me so relevant. So it begins by saying, do not fret. And that is the theme. That phrase occurs over and over again. Do not fret. Do not fret. That is a word as we've already heard, having to do with feeling anxious. It has to do with that gnawing sensation in our hearts when we feel a panic attack coming on or we feel some anxiety affecting us. Now, some people never have any anxiety. They're just sort of born up here with a nature that doesn't feel worry or stress. But I think most of us know something about the worries of life, the things that will wake us up at night, or that thing that we observe in our teenager's life that causes us some problems, or or the thing that we're not sure about with the economy and with our employment and with our job, or whatever it is. There is a lot to worry about. But the Lord says here, don't worry about it. Whatever it is you're worried about, don't worry about it. Well, how do you not worry about what you're worrying about? You have to push it out with other things. So in these eight verses, there are a number of alternatives for worrying that our Lord recommends to us. He says, do not fret because of evildoers, because of these still surviving occupants in this hostile land, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Here is the first thing in verse 3, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. I love that phrase. And sometimes when I'm feeling worried, I just start quoting Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 to myself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Robert. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. But here's something interesting. At least, well, it's interesting to me. We know that people have always, or some people, have always lived by faith from the very beginning. There have been godly people in every generation. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Enoch, and by faith Noah, and by faith Abraham, and by faith Isaac and Jacob, and so forth. So we know that every generation has had people who had faith in the Lord, but there is a curious absence of the word trust in the early books of the Bible. Now, I'm speaking here of the English Bible. You get a concordance, and you look up trust. There is no trust in Genesis. That word doesn't occur in Exodus. There is no occurrence of the word trust in Numbers, Leviticus, and only once in Deuteronomy when it talks about people who are trusting false fortifications. Nothing in the first five books of the Bible about trusting the Lord. That word doesn't show up. Isn't that interesting? Nor in Joshua, nor Judges, nor Ruth nor 1 Samuel, no one talked about trusting 
the Lord, using that word in the English. But then we come to, Genesis, uh, to 2 Samuel and chapter 22. I'd like to show you that, 2 Samuel and chapter 22. 2 Samuel and chapter 22. Then David spoke to the Lord. Now notice, we're talking about David. He lived a thousand years after Abraham. Abraham was about 2000 B.C., David about 1000 B.C., Jesus right at zero. They were separated by millennia, each one of them. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on that day, when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God of my strength in whom I will trust. He says, he coined that phrase, I will trust in him. And David started using that word over and over again. Look at Psalm 5, Psalm and number 5. And verse number um, 11. But let those who rejoice put their trust in you. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Chapter 9 and verse 10. He says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. Chapter 13 and verse 5. But I have trusted in your mercy, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And so it is. You can trace this word all the way through the book of Psalms. What does it tell us? I think this is what it says. Now, again, this is another theory of mine. People had faith in God. But David was a great Bible scholar. I think we underestimate what a great Bible scholar he was. He was one of the greatest theologians in the history of Judaism or Christianity. And he knew the books that he had available to him. He knew Exodus and Genesis and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He knew all of those. And he studied them. And he must have had a brilliant mind. And he assimilated them theologically. And he took the promises that God had given to Abraham and to the patriarchs. And he took the law that God had given to Moses and he assimilated it in his personality and what it meant to obey God and what it meant to trust God. And it came to life in the brilliance of his mind. Psalm 1, for example, is simply his meditations on Joshua chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 and 9. David studied. I don't know where he got it. But remember, his great-grandparents were Ruth and Boaz. He came from a very godly family. And I don't know about his father, Jesse, but he says on one occasion, he says, I am trusting the Lord from my mother's womb the way that she did. So I think that his mother was a great woman of faith, and he was mentored by Samuel, who thoroughly knew the law. So David had a brilliant mind, and he did for the idea of trusting the Lord, what Martin Luther did for justification by grace through faith. It was already there, but David found a way of making it so visceral. And he said, I've studied all of this, and I want to tell you something. There is something wonderful you can do. You can trust 
the Lord, and he coined that word. He used it all the way through his writings and through the Psalms, and ever since then, we've been talking about how it is that we can trust the Lord. What does it mean to trust the Lord? To establish the mental determination that you are going to reckon the promises of God over the problems of life. Just the mental determination based upon the sufficiency of Scripture that you are going to reckon the promises of God above the turmoils and problems of life. I know I've got this, but God has said. I know I've got this, but God has said. And we learn to trust Him. I had a little experience of this when I was a teenager. I felt that I wanted to be a Bible teacher or a preacher, but I had a problem, and that was I was very introverted and suffered severe stage fright. And I would get panic attacks when I got in front of people. It was a very embarrassing thing in junior high school because we had to give oral reports in class, and I would prepare mine and have it all written out, but when I'd get up, my hands would shake, and on one very humiliating time, the teacher came and stood beside me to catch me if I would fall over. I just, I was, had terrible stage fright. Just, I, I didn't know the word panic attack back then, but it was a full-fledged panic attack. But I still wanted to be a Bible teacher and a preacher. And at my church, they would ask me to give the Scripture sometimes, to read the Scripture in smaller settings. And I remember one, I think I must have been about 16, was how old I was. But it was in a room with about 30 people, and there was a huge pulpit there, too big for the room, but, you know, it, it was there. And so I had a lot of, you know, I could hold on to it. And I was trying to read the scripture, and I was shaking, and my mouth was dry. And I was so frightened that I could hardly get the words out. And I was reading the words, but in my mind, my mind was saying, what are you doing up here? What are you doing up here? How did you get yourself into this? What are you doing up here? Will you survive this? And I distinctly remember... I didn't stop reading. Nobody knew what was happening in my mind. I was reading on automatic pilot. But my mind was saying, what are you doing up here? And I remember saying to myself, I am reading the Bible, shut up. <laughs> and you know, I don't know how to explain it, but my fear of public speaking, it just disappeared. It evaporated at that moment. And I've Never really had stage fright since then. Now, how do you explain that? Well, I don't know, but I think there are a lot of times when we're having panic attacks or we're worried or we're full of fear or we're dreading bad news and we need to say to ourselves, shut up, God has something here to say. We have the Word of God. And so it is with the power of Scripture we barrel through that barrier and we find victory and peace on the other side of it, based not upon our own resources, but upon the wonder and the power and the sufficiency and the certainty of this word. Trust in the Lord, he says. Do not fret, but first of all, trust in the Lord. And secondly, in verse 3, he says, and do good. Now, 
we would say, obey. Trust and obey. David. Now, this was a thing of theological genius at this point. David took the promises that had especially been given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the law that had been given to Moses. And he brought it together in his mind and said, well, this means we must trust the promises and obey the commandments, and that is the assimilation of what it means to be a godly person. And so we do good. We don't do bad. We do good. And this is one of the most helpful things you can ever know when you are overwhelmed with worry or concern, that one of the best strategies for overcoming it is just to get up and do the next thing. I learned this really from Elizabeth Elliot. The last couple of years when my wife was going down physically with her multiple sclerosis, and I was worried and concerned. And I got a book by Elizabeth Elliot, that great missionary wife and writer. And one of her chapters was, Do the Next Thing. And she said in there, when I am worried and overwhelmed with anxiety, she said, if I just sit or if I just pace, it gets worse. But she said, if I get up and I wash the dishes or I mop the floor or I bake something and take to a neighbor, it seems to help. We just have to do the next thing. And I don't know why that's true, but the Lord doesn't want us sitting around wringing our hands. He has a certain number of things for us to do every day. I'm of the opinion that the Lord has an agenda for us for every day of our lives. Psalm 139 verse 16 says in the Living Bible, I saw you before you were born and scheduled each day of your life before you begin to breathe. Every day is recorded in your book. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So my own personal habit is every morning I get up and I have my devotional time with the Lord and I spend time with Him in Bible study and prayer. And then I say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? We often do not know what we should do five years from now or 10 years from now, or sometimes even tomorrow. But we can generally figure out what we ought to be doing today. And I say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And I'll look at the calendar, and I'll look at my list, and I'll look at the things, and I'll, on a little three-by-five card, I jot down an agenda for the day, and I commit it to him, and I just try to go through that agenda and do those things. I don't believe the Lord wants us wasting time. Now, we all need some relaxation. And we all need some entertainment. We all need to unwind a little bit. But not in a way that is just wasting time. God has things every day for you to do. They may not be great things, but they're great as we do them for His glory. The Bible says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it for His glory. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, it says, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. 
So what does God want us to do? Well, it helps us if we will just get busy and do it. Trust in the Lord and do good. And I'll tell you something, you never know. When some little bit of good you do today, well, many, many years later, bear fruit. My mother, who passed away in the year 2000, uh, made quilts. She made beautiful quilts. I have one on my bed today. And I never knew her to sell one. She just made them and gave them away. But that was her hobby. One of her hobbies was quilting. And when she died, she had a big chest full of remnants that she was planning to make a quilt. She didn't expect to die, but she did. And those remnants have been in that chest for 20 years. And my sister, her daughter, Sarah, is a nurse who was treating coronavirus patients. And she called over from North Carolina and said, our hospital here doesn't have any face masks. And my sister went up, opened that chest, got those remnants from my mother, and I have one out in the car, I should have brought it in, but made beautiful face masks. Now, they weren't sufficient for the most sensitive areas in the hospital, but those face masks out of my mother's remnants went to patients and to visitors and to people in that hospital just when it was needed. And I thought, if only my mother could have known that when she was cutting out those pieces of cloth that one for another quilt, it was so that 20 years later, people might have what they needed for the saving of their health and their lives. There's not much that we do, maybe nothing that we do when we do it for the Lord that is ever wasted or forgotten. And things have a much greater life than we know when we do what we do for the Lord. So the writer here, David, says, do not fret, but trust in the Lord. And number two, do good. And number three, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. And one of the reasons I memorized this out of the New King James Version is I love that phrase, feed on his faithfulness. You know, David was a shepherd, and the word pasture and the word pastor, our English word pastor, are related. A good pastor, like Dr. Easley, is someone who leads the flock into the sweet pasture of Scripture. And when we read and study our Bibles every day, we are feeding on God's faithfulness. The word faithful in the Bible, as it relates to God, is used 66 times. One time for every book in the Bible, on average, we are told that God is faithful. And the word faithful simply means that any and everything he has ever promised down to the last syllable will be totally fulfilled by the time it is all said and done. God will be true to his word and nothing, not one little word will fail. So anytime you go through the Bible and you read something, it is true, it is absolutely true, it is proven and backed up by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it represents the consistent faithfulness of God. And as you feed on that, then you become nutritionally healthy in a spiritual sense. 
about five years before my wife died, we were both having a lot of issues with dealing with her MS, and we were at our home in Roan Mountain, Tennessee, sitting on the front porch. And um, Katrina said to me, will you go get me that bottle of extra strength, those extra strength pills in the, refrig in the um, kitchen? And I said, yes, do you have a headache? She said, no, but I need extra strength today. And I went and got the bottle, and sure enough, it, the main words were extra strength. And so I gave her a couple of pills, and I took two myself. We both needed extra strength. <laughs> but the next day, I looked up the word strength in the Bible. And we know, of course, that strength doesn't primarily come from medication, but by meditation. And so... Katrina and I went through all of the references to strength in the Bible, and we selected 12 verses as our extra strength Bible verses. Verses like Deuteronomy 33, as your days are, so shall your strength be. Or Isaiah 41.10, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Or Nehemiah chapter 8, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Or Philippians chapter 4, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we studied those 12 verses. I did a series of sermons on them. And then she and I wrote a book together called The Strength You Need. But those verses helped us so much. And if you have any issue in your life, Maybe you're drinking too much. Maybe you're having trouble with profanity. Maybe you're having trouble with pornography. Maybe you're anxious about something. Whatever it is, you can find a dozen verses in the Bible on that subject. You write them down. You do a subject of them. You memorize them. You are feeding on God's faithfulness, and it gives you victory. It will help give you victory over that temptation. And the same is true of anxiety and worry. And this is what I've done. It's helped me so much. You feed on his faithfulness, which means you become someone who studies the Bible every day. You study it specifically. You study it with pen and paper and with a notebook, and you really get into it. You memorize those verses. You learn to meditate on it, and you feed on his faithfulness. Can you see how that will drive away fretting from your heart? That's what he's saying here. Do not fret. Instead, trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. And finally, for today, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What does it mean to delight in something? It means you find great joy there. You relish it. You know, Ruth Bell Graham told me once, you think about this. She said, the closer you get to heaven, the closer you feel to hell. And I said, Ruth, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, as you grow as a Christian, you want so much to become more and more like Christ and to please him but you see how far short you come and you become increasingly aware of how sinful you are. So you have to keep going back to God's mercy and grace. And I think that's true. I mean, 
I've tried so hard to please the Lord, and every day I feel like I didn't quite do it today. I messed up here. I messed up there. This morning, even, I mean, before I even got here, I had a piece of strawberry pie for breakfast, and I'm trying to be nutritionally sound. I thought, Lord, why did I do that? But the Lord doesn't want us to go around feeling guilty all the time. His mercy and His grace is very great. The Lord doesn't want us to feel intimidated all the time, to feel defeated all the time. He wants us just to delight in Him. And I think the best picture of this in all of the Bible is Luke 24 when those two disciples were going to Emmaus and they were downhearted that Jesus came along and when they sat down at supper and he broke the bread, suddenly they saw him. He disappeared, but how delighted they were. And they raced all the way back to Jerusalem and said, it's true, we've seen him. And there he was. And can you think of how delighted, can you imagine the relish, the joy, the happiness, the peace, the exuberance, the euphoria of being with the risen Christ. I don't think that most of us have enough euphoria in our lives. We need the euphoria of the risen Christ. Delight yourself in the Lord. And it doesn't say here that he will fulfill the desires of your heart. Don't misread this. It doesn't say delight yourself in the Lord and he will fulfill the desires of your heart. It says he will give you the desires, the great desires he has for you. He knows who he, who he wants for you to marry or what occupation he wants you to have or what hobbies you, he wants you to develop or how he wants to... He knows your whole future that he's got planned out for you. And he will plant those desires within you as you delight in him. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he will give you the desires that corresponds to his fabulous will for your life. Can you see how that would reduce our propensity to worry and to fret? Well, I'm going to stop at this point and we'll pick it up here, Lord willing, next week for the remainder of this little paragraph. But I hope that this passage is resonating with you. It's a passage for people who are dwelling in hostile territory and want to know, how can I be victorious? How can I have peace? Help me, Lord, with this. So do not fret because of evildoers. Or be envious of the workers of iniquity, uh, of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart.